Welcome to the Woe Podcast about horses and horsemanship, where we get to talk horses. We're your hosts. I'm John Hare. And I'm Renee Hare. Thanks for listening and sharing our horsemanship journey. The Woe Podcast started in 2012. It stemmed from our interest in down-under horsemanship. Before we found Clinton Anderson, we struggled with our horses. Once we found the method, things turned around. And probably saved my life. (laughs) Yes, and and literally (laughs) saved your life. The podcast was actually an inspiration from the conversations Renee and I had talking about Down Under Horsemanship after every ride. We would noodle through the things that we'd seen, how we had applied them to our horses, and what we thought the results were. And what we could do better on the next ride. The podcast kind of muddled through for three or four years. We weren't producing an episode every week, and it took us a little while to get to 100 episodes. As we approached that magic number, I contacted Down Under Horsemanship and wanted to know if Clinton Anderson would come on the show. He very graciously agreed. We'd like to rebroadcast that interview from April 2015 for you this holiday season. It's kind of my Christmas gift to me and you, because <laughs> it's really my favorite episode. I got to tell you that I still let everybody know that most of what I know about horses and horsemanship came from watching DVDs of Clinton Anderson. I watched them over and over and over again. Each time I went out to train my horse and I was having a problem, I had my virtual mentor, Clinton, in my head. I'd hear his voice as he was telling me to yield to hindquarters or to bump on the lead rope. It was a little bit surreal having the real live Clinton (laughs) on the other end of the phone line during this conversation. Well, it wasn't much of a conversation. I mean, I'd (laughs) I'd throw out a little uh, question and then let him go on and on, which he did. He talks almost as good as he trains horses. (laughs) I think it's better. I did edit out some of the the time references. Uh, There is one reference to a current issue of the No Worries Club Journal. That's a couple years old now, so ignore that. But most everything else holds up today. We hope you're all having a great holiday season and getting to spend some time with your horses. And now, here's our rebroadcast of my conversation with Clinton Anderson on the Woe Podcast. I'd like to welcome Clinton Anderson to our 100th episode of the Woe Podcast. How are you doing today, Clinton? I'm doing great, mate. How are you doing? Congratulations. Thank you. And uh, I really appreciate you coming on the show. You know, I've spent a lot of time watching your videos and listening to you talk. And each time I do groundwork or ride my horse, I pretty much hear your voice in my ear. And I'm not exaggerating. We've had over a thousand conversations over the years, and it's going to be a little bit weird actually having you present for one of those conversations. <laughs> well, good, good. Hopefully, it'll be. We'll all be saying the same thing. One of the questions that I've always wondered about was uh, the beginning of your career when you left home at a young age to train with Gordon McKinley. It sounds like you had a lot of friends in polo cross and such. Were there times when you were apprenticing with Gordon that you felt you were missing out on some of the social aspects of being a teenager? Um, yeah, not 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 at the time. You know, when I left high school when I was 15, I pretty much left all my friends in high school behind and 
and I really didn't go back and see any of them for about two years. For a while, I thought maybe I missed out on some fun and some parties and things like that. And one thing happened that kind of changed my whole outlook on that. About I was really at Gordon's for two years before I went back to where I grew up. You know, when I worked for Gordon, it was like, you know, I had to grow up in a big hurry. You know, you went from 15-year-old kid talking, you know, stupid conversations and, and immaturity, and I had to grow up very, very quickly. You know, I'm around people 65, 70 years of age, and I work seven days a week, you know, 14, 15 hours a day. So right. you had to grow up pretty quickly, and I, I got thrown kind of into an adult world. No, I adapted quickly, but that's kind of what my life was. And when I went back to my hometown when I was uh, 17, almost 18, I went through a shopping mall that I used to hang out with some as a kid. Not a lot. I used to ride my horse a lot after schools, but I, I saw I was went through the shopping mall and I saw a, a group of guys that I knew from high school that were all the same age, and I hadn't seen these guys in two years and hadn't really kept up with them. And I walked up to him and and said, "Hey, how, you know, there was one guy in particular. I said, "Hey, John, how you doing?" And I and I stuck out my hand to shake his hand. And I, and I never forgot this. This guy's name was John, and he looked at me, and then he kind of looked at my hand and looked back at me. And it's one of those weird things, like I'm thinking, this guy's not going to shake my hand. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, it, it, he didn't really know what to do. And right at that moment, he kind of reached his hand out towards me and kind of gave me this dead fish kind of a handshake. And right at that moment, I knew that in my mind, I was a man, not a boy. Like, he didn't shake my hand because he didn't know how to do that. Like, that was one of the first things that you do as an adult. You greet somebody, you shake their hand. You know, my mother was always big on that. You know, she taught me from a really early age. You know, you shake somebody's hand and you look them in the eye and you mean business. Don't give them one of these these BS, wet, wet fish kind of handshakes and... You shake a hand with somebody, you know, shake hands with somebody with integrity. Shake hands like you have integrity, mean business. And that guy, he's just a high school kid that he didn't know any better. But I, at that point, I knew I'd left them behind. You know what I mean? I'd grown them to a whole other adult world, and they were still... And then I asked him, I said, Hi, oh, John, what are you guys doing? Oh, we're not doing anything. You graduated? Yes. Where do you go to college? Or what are you doing? Oh, we don't know. And basically, they were just a bunch of bums smoking pot, basically. That's really what it came <laughs> down to. And I would have, I might have been sitting there if I didn't go to Gordon McKinley. And it was when I was fifteen. Uh, I might have been sitting at that table, uh, a bum smoking pot too. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. You know, right, right when I got out of high school, a lot of my friends were getting into a lot of trouble. Right when I got out of high school, you know, it was a big risk me leaving high school. But you know, my parents also knew I was going to, I was going somewhere where I was safe, and I was going into the adult world. And I had plenty of mentors around that would kick me in the ass if I got off the straight and narrow. And and not only that, I was going to be too damn tired to get into any trouble anyway. Yeah, right. The method is is such a step-by-step program. Did you assemble that while you were in Australia or... Did you come to the United States and do that? Is there like a notebook you kept where you where you kind of moved the order of the exercises around in your program? I've moved the exercises around probably 100,000 times in the last 22 years. You know, it's just... I started it in Australia really from the very beginning when I started learning from Gordon and Ian because it's just the way my brain thinks. Like, if you follow Myers-Briggs, I'm an ESTJ. Or if you follow the book, you know, the people code, I'm I'm a red, okay? So... I'm a very structured kind of individual. I hate guessing. I hate wondering. I've I got to have a list and a structure and a procedure to follow. I don't like disorganization. I don't like, I don't like chaos. And I'm not very creative. In fact, I'm one of the least creative people in the world. 
and I have a lot of creative people that work for me, but they're, you know, it's kind of like the back of the hand. Whatever your strength is, is also your greatest weakness. Like creative people, their strength is they're creative. They come up with all these cool designs and video and graphics and all this kind of stuff, but you can't get these damn people to show up to work on time. You know what I mean? Like they're <laughs> real creative, but they're half up goofy. You know what I mean? So, right. I, I, you know, and I put up with that because that's the way their brains are figured. You know, they'd rather show up at 11 o'clock in the morning to go to work and, and finish work at 1 o'clock at night. You know what I mean? That's just kind of, yeah. so you kind of, you, got, you know, creative people are usually terrible managers, but they're hell of a creative people. Now, I'm, I'm the opposite. I'm not real creative at all, but I'll be real, real structured to what I do. So, you know, when I learned this from Gordon and Ian, it was just all in their mind and, and it really had no real order to it. For me to learn it and be passionate about it, I had to have some sort of a structure in my mind to how it actually worked. Gordon would say to me, hey, go down to the barn and get the black horse out and do the exercise where you bend him around, uh, yield his flank quarters, then back him up and then move the front end. And I'm like, is there any way we could just name that exercise? Like, you know, yield the hindquarters, bring the front end through, or, you know, yield that, you know, yield and bend. Can we just name that exercise just for something uh-huh. different? And he'd say, well, sure, if you want to name it, come up with a name. So then I kind of got all the exercises over, over a year named. And then I'd say to him, okay, well, you know, what should be the first exercise? Then you say, okay, this is one, this is two, blah, blah, blah. So then, right. you know, by the time I did my apprenticeship, by the time I was ready to go to the States, I basically had the method for me, which is everything named and numbered. But that, I had to change a lot of it when I came to America because one thing that that clinicians have got to realize in this business, it's not what I can do with a horse that really counts. It's what I can get the public to do. So I learned very quickly oh. that if you can't get a middle-aged woman, 55 years of age, that needs a mounting block to get on a horse and she's a little bit timid to canter, if you can't get her having success, you ain't going to make any money. So I might right. be able to gallop the horse around and stop and spin or ride a bareback or ride, you know, I might be able to do certain things that are athletic, you know, and people might be impressed watching that, but that's only going to make you so much money. That's only going to get you so popular. To get popular, right. you've got to get the masses to be able to get it. And the masses of people, they, they don't bounce like they did when they were 20. You know, I don't bounce when I, like I did when I was 20. You know what I mean? So exactly. the majority of people are not athletic. And this is not making fun of people. This is just a fact. So what I did is I took the method as I knew it, and I I basically divided it up again. I made more exercises. I changed the order of exercises. So the kits that you see today are really the third generation of the method. Actually, almost the fourth generation of the method, really. Uh, I had some video takes years ago called Suppleness and Body Control, Maneuvers and Trouble-Free Trailering. They were the mm-hmm. first attempt I ever had. And then after that, I had a series that, that I made in America called Gaining Control and Respect on the Ground, I think it was called, or right, and another one called Riding with Confidence. So, you know, it's constantly upgrading. But the way the kits are now are pretty much set in stone. You know, I'm going to make a few little updates to them in the future, just different exercises over time I found and tweak a little bit. But they're not going to move very much now. I, over the years, you know, every time I thought I had something idiot-proof, Somebody would walk up to me and say, I don't get it. So then I'd go back to the drawing board and remodel it again, remodel it again, remodel it again, uh, until, uh, you know, I realize you can't fix stupid, okay? But I need to get it to where if I tell 10 people to do this, nine and a half out of 10 are going to say, yep, I understand it. I know what to do. I may not be able to do it perfectly, but, you know, I'm not confused about what to do. Gordon McKinley and, and even Ian Francis, Ian was better than Gordon as far as teaching goes, but... 
Gordon was a phenomenal horseman, but I, I wouldn't have called him a great teacher. And to me, a great teacher is somebody that gets the student to understand quickly, gets the under, uh, student to understand the concepts, etc. He was a phenomenal horseman, but I had to make him be a better teacher. And I did that because I wasn't real bright. I wasn't a good student. I didn't pick up on things quickly. So I had to constantly push him to tell me, well, why do you do this? Why do you do that? Well, what's the benefit of that? And kind of go from there. So, yeah, there's, it's been an evolution. I turned 40 this year in September, you know, I left high school when I was 15, you know. So I've been doing this a while now. So it's, it's, it's no accident that it's come to this way. It's constantly, you know, working on it. In the uh, the latest issue of the No Worries Club Journal, that there's a new trail training series available. And what I found fascinating about that was it starts with how to find the right horse. There's even a section there on when it's time to move on. Do you think people stay with one horse too long? Well, they can. The trial series that is coming out, to me, that's the best work I've ever done. I'm the most proud of this series. In my, in my opinion, you know, I'm the artist. Uh-huh. Every artist thinks the painting's freaking great, doesn't it? You know, but, um, <laughs> In my opinion, it's the best information I've ever released. It's the most comprehensive. I think uh, it takes my kits to a whole other level, and I'm proud of all of my kits, but I think this new kit will take it to another level. There is a big problem with people picking the wrong horses. When the people get into horses, and not even just getting into them, they're already into horses, but they people buy horses off wrong emotions. They buy them off emotions rather than factual things. This is what I need, you know. So we have mm-hmm. a big section on buying the right horse, and we have a big section on how to know if you don't have the right horse. Like, like the method is designed to bridge the gap between uh, horseman and horse. So, for example, you've got a horse that's bucking people off, and you've got a, an owner that's relatively inexperienced and lack of confidence. So obviously there's a huge gap between point A and point B. You've got a horse bucking humans off, and you've got an owner that's inexperienced and lost their confidence. So the method is designed to bring both points closer together. The method is supposed to train the horse to quit bucking, be a nice horse, use the thinking side of his brain, be a productive citizen, okay? And the method is also designed to teach that inexperienced horseman to have better field time and experience. It's designed to build the horseman's confidence, get the horseman to use uh, his thinking side of the brain, and, and to be a good leader for that horse. Well, the method bridges the gap between horse and rider. And a lot of the times, the method can bridge the gap completely. So if we've got you know, if we've got a gap that's, that's 10 inches apart, you know, in a perfect world, we bridge that gap to where there's no gap. You know, you drive straight over from one side of the bridge to the other. There's no gap there. But the method might only, with that particular horse and that particular rider, the, the method might only bring that gap down to, say, two inches. Well, you've got to figure out, is that gap still a gap that's acceptable? Is it a gap that you still have control? Maybe that horse is not completely quit bucking, but it's definitely manageable now. Maybe he's a little spooky still, but he doesn't buck anymore, but he's a little spooky still. So, you know, it can only bridge the gap so far between horse and rider, and sometimes it can't bridge it enough to where there's still a good fit. Well, I think people have this guilt maybe or phobia that they're a bad horse owner if they get rid of that horse. You know, just to be perfectly blunt, that's how I am, you know, people get divorced every day. So if you divorce your husband and wife because you're not a good partner anymore or because you're not a good combination, you might have started out a good combination in your 20s and now you're 50, you both have different needs. So if you divorce a human being 
Why would you think it's bad to divorce a horse if you're not getting along? You know what I mean? Why? Horsemanship is a journey. It's never stagnant. I'm better now than what I was five years ago. I hope five years from today, if I do my job right, I'm better than what I am today. So it's like when you get your first bike for Christmas, you know, you're a four-year-old kid, five-year-old kid, whatever you are, and you've got training wheels on the bike and small bike and big white tires. Well, that's a bike that's appropriate for that age kid. It'll build his confidence. It'll have a lot of fun. It's got a bell on it. It's got some ribbons. You're not going to be riding that bike at 24. (laughs) Absolutely not. Maybe not even in 18 months, probably within a year, kids grow so quickly that he'll outgrow that bike. Right. Okay? So so what makes you think, if you don't ride the same bike for 20 years, what makes you think that, that every horse you buy is going to be suitable for your 20-year journey? And, and again, I don't want people to take what I'm saying out of context. Okay, Clinton said it's just time horses are disposable. You know, this is where all the tree huggers jump on me, and they take my words out of context. Well, Clinton just said every horse is disposable, and they're garbage, and as soon as the horse makes a mistake, he says, get rid of it. No, that's not what I'm saying whatsoever. What I'm saying is have a realistic, honest evaluation of are you and this horse a good fit? And if the answer is no, life is too frigging short to mess with them. You know, I had a producer years ago that was with me for nine years on my television show. She had this horse that was just a, a, a big pain in the ass. You know, he, I had trained the horse, I had tra- retrained the horse for her, and he just wasn't a cooperative horse whatsoever. He'd cheat her every chance he'd get. He'd mistreat her every chance he'd get. And, and she always had never had any fun when she rode. And finally, I said to her, I said, Gail, how about we just get rid of this horse? He is not a good fit for you. And, and, I, and I had to kind of talk her into it. Well, I've had him so long now. You know, I'm kind of attached to him. And, and this is the stuff that actually baffles my mind. We'll get this, like, when we interview people for the tour horses on tour. So Shana will, will uh, and I used to do this years ago, you know, every job in the company, believe me, for many years I did it myself. And as I got bigger, I got to hand it off. But Shana will interview somebody for a problem horse for the tour. And they'll say, and this is actually, this is comical what I'm going to tell you, but you would be amazed how many people actually say this. This is not like a one-off thing. This is like two out of every three conversations like this. Well, tell me about your horse. And so, well, you know, he kicks me and he bites me and I've got bucked off him several times and I try can't catch him, and he's really mean around the barn, and blah, 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 and and they'll say all these nasty things, and then I tell you what, the next thing out of their mouth, you know what they'll say, but I just love him so much, <laughs> I, just, I just love him, I couldn't imagine having, not having him part of my family, I'm like, are you shitting me, come on now. If you had a if you had our partner that slapped you around the head every day, and kicked you in the guts, and threw you down some stairs, you'd get rid of him, wouldn't you, or you should you right. get what I'm saying? So yes. why would you let a horse abuse you for years and years on end? You know, just, we, we actually laugh about it now because it's so common. You know what I mean? You know, tell me, tell me again why you've got this horse. Well, I just love him. Well, well, love doesn't keep you out of hospital, honey. Love doesn't keep you out of getting your neck broke. You know what I mean? Common sense and good horsemanship and the right horse keeps you from getting your neck broke. So I went and bought Gail a new horse. And she used to show in, like, Western Pleasure and little horsemanship classes and just, like, open uh, AQHA shows. And I went and bought, like, a 10-year-old gelding. He'd been there, done that. He was a youth uh, world show uh, horse. You know, he'd been all over the country 80 times. And within the first week and a half, two weeks of her riding this horse, she called me up and she said, Quentin, I can't believe how many years I wasted with payback 
when I could have been riding a nice horse like this horse. And she wow. rode that horse for a good 10 years before he got a little bit of ring bone and she couldn't ride him after he's 20. But she uh-huh. rode that horse. She, we paid 20 grand for that horse and she rode that thing for 10 years and had the time of her life. So her, her, her hobby cost her two grand a year, basically, in depreciation. And that's what you want in a horse. You want that partnership. Yeah, everybody's striving for that. But, but just because the horse you've got now doesn't mean it's the right partner for 20 years. You know, I realize the dream that every woman has is they buy the horse, they fall in love, they have a great partnership, and the horse dies on their ranch. That's a noble dream. I'm not making fun of the dream. But just because that's a perfect world dream. Well, last time I realized we don't live in a perfect world. So so if you don't have that, figure out, can you make it? Can you train the horse to be that good partner? Can somebody else train the horse to be a good partner and then you get it? You know, just like the academy horses, most of the horses that come in for the academy program, a third of them are colts that have never been started. A third of them are horses that are what I'll call green broke. Their owners have good intention, but, you know, lives, hobbies, jobs, they just don't have time to train the horse. And a third of the horses have been to four other trainers. And if we don't fix the horse, it's literally going to get put down. Well, I'd say nine out of ten of those horses, we can bridge the gap so that by the time the owner comes to pick the horse up for six or seven weeks of training, they get along really well. But, you know, one out you know, one out of ten horses every once in a while, we'll bridge the gap. But that, that horseman, that owner, is such a novice, and this horse needs a very experienced rider, that they're just not a good fit. You know, and I tell them, I said, you can take the horse home and, and ride it, but I said, I, I don't think it's going to be a good fit for you. This horse needs this kind of owner, and you're not it. It doesn't mean you won't be that in the future. But you're not going to be that kind of owner when you can only ride your horse once a week on a Saturday morning because you work 16 hours a day, five days a week. I'm trying to teach people that, you know, I'm not saying have a cop out and the first thing you do is go dump the horse, put it in sale barn. That's not what I'm saying whatsoever. But what I am saying is, is if you try the method and you're not having much success or, you know, it's a real struggle, or even if you are having success, you've got to have the time to do it. You know, the right. method won't train the horse. You've got to train the horse with the method. It's like it's like people walk up to me all the time on tour and I'll say, Clinton, I got this 21-year-old broodmare and she bucks everybody off and she kicks and bites and she's real pain in the neck. Can I retrain her with the method? She, well, no, actually, they don't ask, could I? They say, should I, should I retrain that horse? And I'll say, well, man, that's not a question for me. That's a question for you. I'm going to ask you a few questions so that you can come to the conclusion. And the first question I'm going to ask you is, Number one, do you have the experience to retrain this problem horse? Because all jokes aside, there were several horses during my apprenticeship with Gordon and Ian, but these horses got the better of me. Like they were, they outsmarted me. I, at that level of my career, I didn't have the field time and no experience to train those horses, and they bothered me a lot. They kept me up at night mm. thinking about how the hell I'm going to outtrain them, and they outtrained me. Now, 20 years mm. later, I could out-train those horses with my eyes shot. They wouldn't bother me at all anymore because I've got 20 years of practice on them, okay? So my first question is, ma'am, and be very honest about this when you answer this, please. Do you have the skill set and the experience to retrain this problem, 21-year-old problem broodmare, you know, horse that you're trying to ride? Yes or no? Let's just say it's yes. And, and, and honestly, most people are not honest with their own ability, unfortunately, okay? But they'll say yes. And then I'll say, okay. So you think you've got the ability and the experience. Now, my next question is to you, do you have the time to do this? Because this is not a, a once-a-week project. This is like 
two, two, two and a half hours a day, six days a week for probably six or seven weeks to retrain this horse to get it to be safe and a good partner. So do you have two, two and a half hours, six days a week for six, seven weeks in a row? Do you have that time? Yes or no? Because like me, I've got all the experience in the world, but I don't have that much time anymore. You know what I mean? Right. I, I got to start riding at four o'clock in the morning. By 10 o'clock in the morning, I'm done. I, I, after that, I got to come back into the real world and, and make a paycheck. You know, I got to come to the office. I'm editing. I'm filming. I'm doing, running the business, basically. Well, I've got all the experience, but right now, I couldn't answer that question. I don't have that much time now. So right. let's just say, yes, Quentin, I'm retired and, uh, and I've got all this time now and I, I can, I've got that. I, I can do this six to seven days a week. And my next question is going to be, well, well, ma'am, let me ask you this. It could take you 100 man hours to retrain this 21-year-old horse to be a productive citizen. But if you go get a three- or four-year-old horse that doesn't have any baggage, that might be just green broke or you know, not, not real well trained, but not badly trained either, it might take you 100 hours to retrain the problem horse, but it might only take you 30 hours to retrain another horse that really, honestly, could be a better horse long-term for you. So do, does it make good business sense to invest 100 hours into a horse that's 21 or 30 hours or 40 hours into a horse that's three or four years of age that could last you many years down the trail? Well, your answer might be, well, you know, my dad gave me the horse before he passed away and it was his last present to me and I'm very emotionally attached to it and it's got a lot of sentimental value. That's okay with me. I'm not making fun of that. But you've got to weigh that up. You know what I mean? So if you, if you think your time's worth that and you're emotionally connected to this horse, go knock yourself out. Go train it. I don't care. So I don't ever answer that question for people. Should you train it or should you not? I just present them with some questions that hopefully they'll be honest with themselves and actually uh, actually answer honestly with themselves. Because it's not my job to say train it or not train. Now, obviously, if I think somebody's going to get hurt, really seriously hurt, obviously then I tell them, do not train this horse. So don't get me wrong. I, I will step in if I feel like that, you know, I don't want to be sitting there when the, when the kid's playing with the basketball on the railway tracks, and it's obvious the train's going to run over the kid in the basketball. But for the most part, I try not to tell people what to do. I just present them with things that they need to think about. As a member of the No Worries Club, I noticed that you're coming out with a new, an academy level, the ambassador program. How does that differ from the other levels? And maybe you could describe exactly what an ambassador is. Well, the ambassador program was another division, basically, of uh, the academy for people that just have a lot of commitments in life. Like, there's a lot of people that say, Clinton, I would love to be one of your academy students. I'd love to be certified by you. But I have three kids. I have a job. Mm -hmm. I have grandchildren. I can't get away from my business for 70 weeks. But you know what? I could pull it off for nine weeks. You know, or hubby or uh, hubby would take care of the kids for nine weeks and let me go do this. Or, but you know, my wife will take care of the kids. Or, hey, Clinton, I'm retired and I could get away from the grandkids for nine weeks, but I couldn't do it for seventy weeks. You know yeah. what I mean? So exactly. it's designed for people that are very passionate about what I do, passionate about the method. Let's face it, as we get older, we just get more crap in our lives, don't we? We get cluttered. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. That's what I tell the academy students. I, you know, I work them very hard. I, I, I don't ever deny that. You know, they, an average day on my ranch is 14 hours a day, and they're, learn, they're in the trench 14 hours a day learning horsemanship. And I tell them, you know, if they ever start to grumble, and they go say, listen, 
this is the easiest time in your life. Because let me tell you something. All you have to do is get up and learn about horses. That's it. You know, I pay you enough to live and feed yourself and pay you basic bills, but you don't have any of the you don't have a, have a husband, you don't have a wife, you don't have kids, you don't have a mortgage, you don't have a boss other than me. This is the simplest time of your life. Because I said, there's going to be a day when you wake up where you're going to wish you could spend more time with me learning about horses, but now you need to make a living. Now you've got a right. mortgage. Now you've got other things. You know, I can't tell you how many people, you know, walk up to me and say, Clinton, if I was 18 all over again, hell, I'd be at your ranch like yesterday. You know, so right. it's designed... It's designed for people that want to be part of our company, are passionate, and have got a decent skill set. You know, I haven't lowered the bar. You know, some people say, well, you just lowered the bar. I didn't lower the bar. I just created a new division. And these people are there to help the local people in their area. Because, you know, hire one of my really good people. It's $1,000 a day. So mm-hmm. a lot of people that are just getting into horses, they may not know about me or method, but, and they don't want to spend $1,000 a day. That, they might be intimidated to spend that, but they might spend $150 for you know, a two-hour lesson. You know what I mean? They, they, they might yeah. spend money with somebody in their local area. So it's basically the ambassadors are kind of like my grassroots um, soldiers. They're out there beating the pavement showing the method, teaching the method to the, the people that are new to horses, the people that are inexperienced, the people that don't have a lot of money. And let me tell you, it's kind of like plankton in the ocean. There's a hell of a lot more plankton in the ocean than what there are big fish. You know what I mean? Exactly. And if an ambassador is local or relatively local, then somebody like it, like I'm in California, I don't have to go all the way to Stephenville, Texas. to. No, no. Or, and you don't have to spend $3,000. Like right now when you hire one of my people, you know, they're not cheap, but they're well worth it. But right now it's a, it's a $3,000 commitment because it's a three-day minimum plus airfare. Well, you're up for a $3,500 minimum commitment. You you don't know much about me, but you might want to just go get a lesson from one of somebody that I've certified, and and you will gamble with $150. And I know you got to run, but I want to ask you. I want to. I like to give our audience a little bit of horseman advice in each show. This might sound like a silly question. I know it's going to be, but if someone was stuck on a desert island and they found a horse, what's the one exercise you would want them to have thorough knowledge in to work with that horse? If they could just have one exercise. Oh, I'd say back the horse up. Backing the horse up. Backing the horse up. Backing backing fixes biting. Backing fixes mouthy horses. Backing fixes pushy horses. We back our horses up so much at the range, most of the time they forget how to go forward. Meaning Mm -hmm. that, you know, and I always say exaggerated things like that because I'm trying to make a point to people, okay? Right. I tell people all the time, if you only pick one exercise from my entire method, what would it be? I would say backing. Because the better your horse backs on the ground, the better he'll stop under saddle, the better he'll collect, the better he'll rate your seat, the less pushy he'll become. He won't bite you. Uh, he won't mouth you. Backing uh, is the foundation of respect. I didn't say it was respect. I just said it's the foundation of respect. So mm-hmm. backing the horse up is a major part of our program. And, you know, all the questions that I get, you know, when people don't know me, well, Clinton, my horse bites me. Clinton, my horse is difficult to lead. Clinton, my horse rears. Clinton, my horse runs over me. Clinton, my horse strikes me. Clinton, my horse pins his ears at me. Uh, Clinton, my horse is mouthy. This one exercise, if done every day, will fix all of that. This has been thoroughly enjoyable. I really appreciate you taking time out of your schedule. And uh, I've been a fan for 10 years now, and I'll continue to be a fan. Well, thank you very much, and I appreciate the listeners. And, and again, there's lots of 
you know, I try to tell people this all the time. There's, there's lots of ways to get in Chicago, you know, north, south, east, and west, and somewhere in between of each direction, okay? I'm not right. telling – I never tell people that my method is the best method. I never tell people it's the only method. It's just the method that works for me, and it mm-hmm. happens to work for thousands of other people all over the world, okay? So, so it's not for everybody, you know. The, the good thing about America is there's so many other good horsemen out there, but if you don't like me – Follow Pat Pirelli. You don't like Pat Pirelli, follow Chris Cox. You don't like Chris Cox, follow follow Monty, Monty Roberts. You know, there's enough people out there that there's a flavor for every taste bud. Does that make sense? There's a flavor for every taste bud. But what you don't want to do, in my opinion, especially when you're learning, is is try to get a taste of each ice cream and think you're going to get an ice cream that's worth eating. You know what I mean? Stick to Stick to a flavor and really get good at that flavor. And then later on, if you want to go experiment, go experiment. But don't don't experiment when you're green because all you end up doing is confusing yourself, confusing your horse. You know what I mean? It, it's kind of like trying to learn a language. You wouldn't learn a week of Spanish and then go learn a week of French and then go learn a week of German. You'd never learn a language at all. Yeah, it, take, it takes you forever. You're, you're dead set right about that. It, ta- it takes forever. And again, horsemanship is a journey, okay? And I'm still on it now. It's a never-ending journey as far as I'm concerned because as soon as you think you got there, I think you're going to get worse with your horsemanship. You know, if I watch somebody work with a horse, you know, if I get a chance to go watch another horseman or watch something on TV or anything like at all, you know, I don't just jump because somebody else is doing it. I might look at it and say, is it better than what I'm doing now? Yes, no. Is it better for the horse? Is it better for the customer? What would work best for everybody involved? Just because you don't change to every new flavor that comes down the road doesn't mean you're closed-minded. You know, and my right. theory is this. If it works, keep doing it. When it quits working, quit doing it. Pretty damn simple, really. And if you can find a better way, find a better way. Yes, if you can find a better way, find a better way. You know, Training a horse is not easy. I've made it easy to understand the concept of the idea, where a lot of horsemanship is very difficult to understand, and that's where I frustrated as a kid. I'll be the first to admit, I'm not really doing anything different from most other horsemen that do what I do for a living, okay? I'm not that special. What I do do that's different is I just make it idiot-proof. Not because you guys are idiot, because I'm an idiot. I had to have this simple to do. You know what I mean? Uh, you know, mm-hmm. I, I, there's one particular horseman I can think of. I won't say his name, but he's a great horseman. But he'll never be popular. He'll never be successful in the clinician business because he, he doesn't realize it's not what you can do with a horse. It's what that 55-year-old lady can do. It's what that 55-year-old guy can do. What right. can you get them to do? Because they're the ones paying the bills. They're the ones that are, are need to feel safe. They're the ones that want to enjoy their horsemanship. So you might do it like this, and it's real effective, but can can that lady do it? Can that guy do it? Because if the answer is no, they can't do it, good luck. You're not going to get financially successful off that. Good luck to you. You know, you might have a system of teaching people how to speak Spanish, but if you can't duplicate that, that method to speak Spanish, well, it's pretty useless, isn't it? It's absolutely useless. And I right. figured that out very early when I came to the States. When I came to the States and did a few clinics, I figured out very quickly, Clinton, you better adapt what you do for the customers that you're teaching this to. Because if you don't, you're going to be very popular, you're not going to make any money, and you're not going to be able to spread something that can help people with their horses. Just one other question, if you don't mind. Yes. Where do you think horsemanship is going to be in 100 years from now? I'm not real confident, I'll be honest with you. I'm Really? Yeah, 
No, I, I don't feel good. Put it this way. I'm glad I won't be training a horse in 50 years from now. I will say that. I think that just animals in general, horses, animals in general, dogs, etc. at least in America for sure, uh, there's just so many tree-hugging people out there, PETA people, tree-huggers, animal rights people, that I will give them credit for this. They've got good intentions of what they're trying to do. Okay, and unfortunately, it's like most things in life that got designed. Like unions, a perfect example in my opinion. Unions were designed to stop people abusing workers in a factory and paying them two cents an hour and working them 19 hours a day and and never right. let them have a good wage. Was that a noble thing to start a union so that workers got compensated fairly? Absolutely, it was a noble intention. It had great ideas behind it. But in my opinion, I'm sure I'm going to piss a few union people off now. In my opinion, I hate unions because every time I have to deal with them, they are the laziest people in the entire world. They are the workers. Because I, I hire facilities all over the country. When I do mm -hmm. tours and events, I hire a lot of big facilities that have union workers. They have the worst mentality, the worst work ethic because they know you can't touch them. So what was a, a very noble thing to protect workers from abuse, in my opinion now, it's just a big political racket. So these animal rights people, they've got very good intentions. They want to shut down the people that are starving animals, starving horses, starving dogs, puppy mills where you've got 100 puppies in a cage and they're just pumping them out like a factory and, and, and the mother dog's poor and she's had 20 litters and they shoot her in the head. Okay, yes, right. they have wonderful intentions of saving animals. But it's just like everything, it goes to the extreme. Unfortunately, with social media and the internet now, I, I think it's a very dangerous time, you know, because you have a lot of very uneducated people behind a keyboard giving their opinion on how they think horses and animals should be trained. And the majority of these people that are stirring up trouble, they've never trained a horse. They've never trained right. a dog. They've never competed. All those nasty show people, they just abuse horses and they ride them as two-year-olds and they cripple them. Well, ma'am, have you ever showed a running horse? You ever showed a cutting horse? Did you ever showed a jumping horse? Because I've got to be honest, when I hear opinions, the first thing I want to hear somebody's opinion, I always think to myself, what do you know about that industry? What, what do you know about it? Have you competed in it? Did you go to school for it? Are you talking from experience? And nine times out of ten, the answer is no, none whatsoever. So I don't really pay too much attention to stuff like that. Does that make sense? But unfortunately... I feel like through social media, people focus on, on bad things very quickly. People blow things out of proportion. And I think, honestly, in 50 years' time, anybody that makes a horse sweat will be a barbarian. You know, heaven forbid anybody whacked a horse with a stick because it went to bite them. You'll be locked up in jail. I'm 20 years older than you, but when I was, you know, when I was a boy, I didn't think I could train a horse because the first guy I saw train a horse hit him with a two-by-four, and I said, I'm not, yeah. not going to do that. And then when I see you come along in 2005 relating with natural, more natural horsemanship methods, I finally understood how the horse works. And I really feel that this method is going to evolve, not only yours, but the other horsemanship, that it's going to evolve to be more of the standard for working with horses. You know, and I hope it keeps going, but I put it this way. I, I'm not confident 50 years from now that I'd want to be training a horse because I think you'll have too many tree huggers sitting on every post with a cell phone and a, and a video camera judging you on how to train a horse. 
and they and they've never trained one in their life. It's like the world equestrian games. I speak to a lot of the rain and horse trainers that have done the world equestrian games, and they have these stewards that that watch these trainers constantly. You are not allowed to touch your horse. I, I'm oh. talking about even in the stall. You cannot touch your horse unless a steward is there watching you. When you train your horse in the World Equestrian Game, you are monitored by several stewards in chairs. And they tell you when the horse has had enough. They tell you when to stop. They tell you when to start. They can say, hey, you're being too abusive now. Any, any, oh, 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 hey, you need to give your horse a rest. Uh, you know, he's got a little bit of sweat on him. And you know right. what annoys me? I could never do, that's why I never tried to even do the World Equestrian Games, because I would want to throw up when some lady's sitting in a, in a chair and she's telling me how to teach, uh, and she's telling me what I can and can't do with my horse. And I've said, lady, have you ever trained a reining horse? Have you ever trained a dressage horse? Have you ever trained a jumping horse? You compete in the event that you're now judging me on what I should and shouldn't do with my horse. And I'll guarantee the answer is no. So to yeah. me, I mean, why, would, why the hell do I want to get? I want to get judged by my peers in life. Maybe I'm a little more pessimistic about the next fifty years to a hundred years of horsemanship. What has happened though is, see, a hundred years ago, you are right. Horsemanship and was very um, barbaric. You know, he hit the horse with a two by four. I'm right. not going to deny that. Gordon Gordon's told me many stories when he was a kid of how they trained horses, and historically, I've read lots of books on it. Horse training was extremely barbaric, you know, industry, really, historically, okay? It's really only been in the last 30 to 40 years that we've seen a major change in the shift on the way that horses are trained. And the reason that is is because there's people like me now that can actually make a living doing it. We're basically a university for horses, okay? So if you go to Harvard and you want to start, study uh, arts, you can go to Harvard and study arts, okay? Or you can study a business program. Well, now I'm a, I'm a university. You can study training horses under this particular method. And so now we have a way of spreading the information. So there's much better techniques now in training the horses. But the problem is now we don't have any work for them. They're recreational pets. They're overfed. They're underworked. They walk about ten. They walk about you know a mile over a week when horses are designed to walk ten to fifteen miles on a day in search mm-hmm. of water and food naturally. So we wonder why they're obese. We wonder why they have health issues. We wonder why they're breathing fire and they're bucking us off. And right. and we don't want to discipline them because they're our they're our little food. They're our pet now. No, they're not a pet. As far as I'm concerned, a pet is like a friggin' chihuahua. Okay, it ain't going to do much damage to you. It might bite you in the finger, and that's about it. But you get a 1,000-pound chihuahua that's up your ass and trying to bite you, he might cause some damage right now, a 1,000-pound chihuahua. Okay, so they're not a pet. I love my horses to death, but I'm well aware that they could kill me. I'm well aware Mm -hmm. that when I'm around them, I better pay attention because they're a very big, strong animal. And I think people are very naive about that. So we've got all these great techniques, but now nobody wants to make them work. Well, we can't make fluffy, you know, we can't make uh, old fluffy sweat now because that's just barbaric. My legacy for what I want to be known for, a lady asked me this in an interview probably six months ago, and similar interview for what we do here, and there's a lady from a magazine interviewed me, and she asked me a question that I've never actually thought about, to be honest, before. And she said, when you die, what do you want to be known for? And I didn't have an answer for her because, just to be perfectly blunt, I don't sit around and think about, you know, what do I, I don't get off on thinking about myself when I die. I couldn't give a crap right. or not, okay? But I got to thinking about it, and I said, you know what? If I want to be known for one thing now that you've asked me, I want to be known for the guy in the horse industry that brought back common sense with horses and people. I want to be known as the guy that was in the middle. 
You don't want to be a barbarian and be beating up your horse. That is clearly wrong. I'm well aware of that, and that doesn't get good results. But on the opposite end of that scale is the Tree Hug and Nagging Mothers Association. That clearly doesn't get any results either. Okay, and the results that it does get are very, very limited. What I want to be is I want to be the guy that says, how about we just come back to the middle, please? The middle is somewhere between being a barbarian and abusing your horse and somewhere between, between a raging tree hugger. How about, how about we just bring some common sense back to this horse industry, please? Because if you don't bring some common sense back to it, people are going to get seriously hurt. It, they, I just don't think people are realistic about how dangerous horses can be. I don't want to scare people, but I, I certainly do think that people are, are unrealistic about what can happen if you don't pay attention around horses. So I want to be known for the guy that says, you know what, that Clinton Anderson, he, he, he makes some pretty good common sense here. You know what I mean? I don't have to agree with everything he says, but he's trying to get people to come back to the middle and just let's just have some common sense and stop being extremists. You know, I can have two or three beers after work. That doesn't make me an alcoholic. Okay, if I want to, if I want to drink a carton of beer every night after work, I might have a drinking problem. Okay. <laughs> well, let's hope you don't need that legacy for a long, long time. But it'd be a good one to have. Thank you, thank you. Well, listen, mate, I appreciate it. I apologize if I rambled on some, but I hope it helped you in some way. I loved it, and it's helped me uh, tremendously, and uh, I know that you've made me and my horses much safer, and I appreciate that. Thank you. You guys did the work. I put the effort out. You guys did all the work. Good job. Appreciate it. All the best. That still is one of my most favorite conversations, Renee. You know what I like most about him? He's always looking for you to raise the bar. He wants you to improve. He wants your horse to improve. I like that. He's very generous with his time. He's very generous with his results. And the, the thing I like most about him is that he wants people to succeed with their horses by improving their horsemanship. And I'll be forever indebted with the knowledge that he shared with us. So that'll do it for this show. Thanks to Clinton. I'll have all the links to Down Under Horsemanship in the show notes at woepodcast.com. Please visit woepodcast.com and sign up for our emails to stay up to date. Have a suggestion for a guest, a comment, just email john at woepodcast.com. You can use the Apple Podcast app to subscribe to the Woe Podcast and you'll never miss an episode. You can also subscribe on Google Play, Stitcher, and iHeartRadio. They're all free and they're all at thewoepodcast.com. And we're even on Spotify now. That's right. Yes. Moving up in the world. (laughs) The Woe Podcast is produced by John and Renee Hare. Thanks again for listening to and sharing our podcast with your friends and riding buddies. We hope you have a Merry Christmas and a great New Year. Until next time, go have some fun with your horses. Bye-bye, everybody. trying to make it uh, I'm actually trying to pause and actually come up with a sentence okay.